to live in a city where there is such a disparity, we think is an injustice. And I remember early on, I remember thinking, heck, if we can if we can build the Panama Canal and put a man on the moon, you know, why can't we bring quality and just education to our cities? You know, America has shown we can do these amazing things. Like, why aren't we doing it in some of these really important issues like education? Hey, everybody, this is Driven By with Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear people that see a need and they do something about it. You're going to hear what drives them, lessons learned along the way, how they built it, and how things are evolving yet still today. It is great to have you on the show. For more information, go to podcast.sampcoats.com. That's podcast.sampcoats.com and subscribe to our weekly email list. And check out my show on Twitter, Instagram, at Sam P. Coates. This show can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts at Driven By with Sam Coates. If you like the show, please spread the word, tell a friend, and leave a review and check out previously recorded episodes. I hope you have a great day. On this podcast and other research, it is said that the gap is widening between rich and poor children with the quality of education that they receive in America. Two of the top leading factors of crime are educational levels and family structure. It's even been talked about on this podcast on previous episodes. Go back to episode three with City Memphis Police Director Michael Rawlings. On this podcast, I love talking to people that are driven for a reason to address a need where it's common to just talk about the problem. This episode is with David Montague, who led the effort in 2009 starting Memphis Teacher Residency Program out of Memphis, Tennessee, where he is still the executive director today. On this episode, we're going to talk about the initial need, how it came together, challenges along the way, what types of teachers do well with this work, successes, and the work that is still to be done. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world, so this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A dot com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. David, great to see you. 
Good to be here. So what did you do before you started in MTR in around 2009? Well, my original career was with Morgan Keegan, and but I was neither of those two titles. I was just a what they call a retail stockbroker. So uh, I started there right out of college in 86. So that was my first sort of oh, 15, 20 years of working was as a, as a retail broker. Gotcha. So how did MTR happen? Well, I had two other shorter stops before MTR. So when I left Morgan Keegan, it was specifically to go to an organization called Service Over Self or SOS. So it's a Christian ministry that did home repair in the Orange Mound and Binghampton neighborhood and served as a sort of a one-week mission opportunity for high school and college groups to come and, and work. So I was there for five years. Uh, and then after that, my family, I'm married and have uh, five daughters at the time, four daughters. We left SOS in Memphis in 05, 2005, and went with an organization called Campus Crusade or Crew and served in East Asia for a couple of years. And so that took us to 2007. And we came home in 07. Uh, and at that time, I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was coming back to Memphis for. And I remember vividly praying and saying, uh, Lord, show me the biggest need in our city, and I'll give myself to it for the rest of my life. <laughs> anyway, so when I came home in 07, I began to have uh, some conversations with a foundation that was active in education in Memphis, and one thing led to another to where in, in January of 08, I went to work for a foundation helping them in those efforts. You don't hear that every day. Show me the biggest need in the city, and, and I'll get to work. Can you talk about that particular season and how those desires got put on your heart? I'm sure it just wasn't a complete uphill experience. I don't know. Maybe it was, but can you talk about how some of that transpired? Yeah, I think it really would go back. Uh, we, I won't take too much time on this, but it goes back really to the late 80s. When I was in my mid-20s, I became a Christian, and that was a just a radical, life, obviously a radical life-changing experience. And one of the big sort of aha moments I had early in my faith was this idea of, um, you know, kind of the contrast between a man-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel with the idea being a man-centered gospel is often how I might think of God as sort of this all-powerful being who exists to make me happy uh, and that I can easily get into the rut of reading the Bible from that perspective. But in reality, the gospel is a God-centered gospel where God has a narrative, he's up to something, and that is the redemption of all human life, for all creation for his glory. And what I'm, I think my role, uh, instead of fitting God into my life, I fit my life into God's story. And his story is about recreation, redemption for his glory. And so from that moment on, really, it was, uh, I have one job in life, and that is to bring him honor and glory, and really matter what my title is or where I'm working, that job description never changes. Uh, so that was a big, that was a big aha moment for me. And then, you know, I think I went to SOS with an idea of hoping to share that sort of God-centered gospel mentality to as many people as possible through, through the people that came through SOS. And so I think that was my primary reason for leaving the brokerage business and getting into the, getting into the nonprofit world. Was it uncomfortable from a career standpoint or to your family about being a stock picker and being in the finance world and then 
going into ministry and then moving to Asia and then coming back here without complete clarity on what you were doing next? Yes, that's funny you say that or ask that. You know, I have a very vivid memory of, so I left Morgan Keegan and, you know, we worked in the, in the Morgan Keegan building downtown and all, of, you know, it was nice and we wore suits and, uh, and sort of had that lifestyle and then went to SOS. And at that time, SOS was in a mobile home on cinder blocks <laughs> in, the, in the parking lot of Christ Methodist Church. And I remember going into work my first day and the place just had dust everywhere. It was dirty all the furniture was, you know, donated old stuff. And shortly after that, I woke up in the middle of the night. I'll never forget this. I woke up in the middle of the night sobbing and, un- you know, uncontrollable cry. Like, like, I'm not talking about just tears in my eyes. I'm like, I'm, I'm heaving. Like I'm, I'm groaning in with these really like, and I, it was almost like an out of body experience where I was, I remember thinking like, what are you doing, David? Like pull yourself together. And yet I couldn't keep myself from this wailing. And I was, and so I was asking myself in the moment, what's going on? Like, what is happening to me? And my answer at the time, and I think the answer is correct. Like, I, I think I was grieving the loss of this identity that I had created at Morgan Keegan of like some level of success and some level of financial security and sort of like the idea of, having that and no and and other people knowing that and now I was working alone in a trailer on a dusty trailer um and I didn't think that would bother me like I thought I was above that or I thought I had enough maturity where I could and boy it just hit me like a ton of bricks that I was not ready for the I wasn't as mature spiritually as I thought I was because I was not ready for the loss of uh, sort of kind of status that came with the job change so no it was a at times is a really difficult transition from that standpoint. And so you said those nights, that particular instance, that was within the first few nights that you had started? I think so. I think certainly within the first few weeks, sure. Sounds like getting, which I think about times in my own life, just getting put through the fire. Yeah. But man, that is not the only experience in my life like that. But one of the lessons from that, I think, is like how good a humbling is. Like humility is so important for your perspective in life. And so having moments in life that are really hard that humble you are also really, really good. They've been really good for me. We could probably just do a whole episode and and uh, just dive in on what we've talked about so far in the first five, six minutes. But were you feeling some shifts going on throughout that 15 or so years? Or was it sudden? Or, or was there a constant kind of like, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to be, but you just kind of kept doing your work? Oh, gosh. Well, early on, you know, I became a Christian when I, when I was uh, 24. I'd been at Morgan Keegan for two years, and it, I'd say that was the single biggest reason that allowed me to be successful versus flunking out of being a, being a broker. <laughs> and I think to specify that, it was that my, my mindset went from I'm here to make a lot of money to I'm here just to help people that need help with their investments. And that sort of perspective allowed me to have more confidence and more honesty and be able to build more trust with people that I think is what allowed me to, to stay in the business and raise a family. So when you talked about early on, you talked about man-centered religion, you know, versus God-centered and God's not created for us, but, you know, we're created to serve him and glorify him. So I'm curious when you first heard that, where did you hear that? And can you talk a little bit about maybe the significance of that particular message, the way that you heard it? 
I'd say a couple things. One, I, I got to give, uh, I have for years, for almost as long as he ever did it, attended uh, Sandy Wilson's Amen on Thursday mornings, the second press, just radically, his teachings radically changed my life. Uh, I also remember reading John Piper's Desiring God that really primed me for this God-centered perspective. But specifically, uh, my wife and I and my brother and a, another good friend of mine signed up for a course called Perspectives. Or, and I think the long name is Perspectives on the World Missions Movement. At the time, that was being offered by uh, First of Ann. And we went to it and it was the very first night. So they give you readings to do and then they have a speaker. And so we went to it, the speaker, his study was this, you know, he just had two columns, man-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel. And it was, you know, he just went through, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, you read the story of God sending the plagues and the Israelites get to leave Egypt. And if you just read it from a, I just want to be happy perspective, you think, boy, God did this great miracle to rescue and save the Israelites, and aren't the Israelites happy, right? And then what you realize is, is that you, if you keep reading that, what it says is that God says, I'm going to send the plagues to set my people free so that they may worship me, so that they may glorify me. And so he just took us through examples of that in the Old Testament, and the prophets, the New Testament, even Jesus. Like, you know, we think Jesus came to save us, which he did. If you stop there, you just, boy, doesn't that make me happy? God, Jesus exists to save me, right? But you also move into this idea where Jesus said, actually, I came, Lord, that I may glorify you. And so he got, he got through walking through these, these comparisons, and he took an intermission <laughs> saying, I, I don't know what happened, but we're sitting at this table, and he does this intermission, and I just, I start beating the table. I mean, I start hitting the table with my fist. <laughs> Looked over at my wife and I just said, I said, Dave, this changes everything. <laughs> I said, did you hear him? I said, that, did you hear this? Like this just, everything just changed. It's everything just changed. This changes everything. And it was just that simple idea. And so, the, and then the, one of the funny things happened. So we go home, we go to bed that night. I get up the next morning at whatever time I'm, you know, to go to Morgan Keegan and I go get in the shower. And I, I vividly, I still remember it like it was yesterday. I'm taking a shower and I have this idea and I, I was like, I've lost 10 pounds. <laughs> how, man, how did I lose so much weight? And I start with my hands, start putting my hands on my shoulders and my chest and my stomach. And I'm like, where did all the weight go? How did, <laughs> how did that happen? And for probably 15 seconds, I'm feeling my own body to figure out where my weight went. <laughs> and then I just like, it hit me and I was like, I didn't lose any weight. I was like, I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have anything like I have. There's only one thing to worry about. And that is that in every decision, every conversation, every interaction, I, there's only one thing to worry about. And that is, is God honored in this, you know, in this setting, in this deal. And I don't have to worry about how much money I make, how much my net worth is. Did I get invited to a party? Did I get slighted? Is that person laughing? Are they laughing at me? Like all of these things no longer matter. All that matters is God honored by the way that I think and act and talk. And man, that's freeing, totally freeing. Did it shift that significantly that quickly? Or did you have experiences where there was revelation and clarity, but then there's kind of a, sometimes it creeps back up or. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, to some degree, it's a constant struggle. I'm fighting me, you know, one of the things Sandy used to say in Amen, and I've say it now to myself all the time and to others is like, man, my biggest problem, you know, in my family, my biggest problem at MTR 
you know, my biggest my biggest problem is me. If I could just get myself, you know, together, things would go. So no, it's a constant. It is, obviously it's a constant battle. But I know one thing that I have noticed about sort of living the trying to live out the gospel in your life is I. It, I don't know if this is right or not. It feels like to me faith is like a muscle, and boy, when you when you employ faith, I think you see the. I think you see God work and act. I think you see the benefits of that. And it gives you, it, in, you know, it fills you and it inspires you and it encourages, it's a, you know, it, and literally it's like being intoxicated. It's like a, it's almost like a drug where you want more of it. And so then you can exercise more faith more often as you have these experiences of faith in your past. I read somewhere that stuck with me is this idea of, man, life is just a pursuit of stories with God. And, and, uh, you know, when we, you know, what are the treasures that you're hoarding that you're building up on earth? And man, I think the greatest treasure is just, you get to the end of your life and you just have, you know, you just have these stories of interactions with God. And so as you have those, I think it allows you to, to continue to, to live that way. And and then the last thing I I do want to say about this, one of the things I've learned in life is that my natural self wants to work towards independence you know, I want to be independently wealthy. I want to protect myself. I want to buy enough insurance. I want to buy, have these things so that I'm sort of safe and secure in life. The problem with that is, is that I think in scripture, what you find out is that God typically shows up when people are in need. And so if I want to collect stories with God, if I'm constantly moving towards safety and security and independence, I don't know that God looks down and says, oh, well, he, you know, he needs an interaction. He needs help, you know. God comes in when Daniel's in the lion's den. And that's when, you know, I, and I love thinking of it this way. I'm sorry I'm talking too much. But no, like, that's great. when Daniel gets out of the lion's den, Daniel's not saying, I believe in God because I read about him in the Bible. Daniel's saying, I believe in God because I just saw him in the lion's den, right? And so I think, I think a counterintuitive way to think about life and pursuing stories with God is you sort of want to pursue dependence. You know, you sort of want to pursue risk and you want to, pursue faithfulness because I think that's when you get yourself in trouble <laughs> or you get or you or you're surrounded in need and that when you're in need is when God shows up and you, or it's easier to see and so the freedom that you described is it merely for us that we think of Christianity the way that you talked about where it's us centered and not God centered for his glory or how would you describe how that plays out in our society today and in history itself? Well, I do think, you know, I read, I read the Bible, also read a a lot of, anyway, I like to read primary documents, you know, speeches and essays from people that I respect and admire, you know, and a theme that comes up often is the destructive power of self-interest and that, you know, it is our self and our self-interest that pits us at odds with what, you know, God's vision for his creation would be. I think a good question to ask is, so how do I lose that self-interest so that I can live in this freedom? And to me, like I'm not a theologian. I don't don't even necessarily always trust what I think. But in my life, the only answer I have to that is reading the Bible. And and not only reading the Bible, but to read the Bible, not, you know, sometimes I'll think of this image as sort of me standing on top of the Bible as though I'm above it and sort of critiquing it and trying to figure out which, what part of it you know, I like or don't like. And then there's another image of me standing underneath the Bible and the Bible's ahead of me, you know, above me. And I think that's what made a difference in my life. 
Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the US. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. You talked about serving clients, you talked about picking stocks, the value it was doing, how your mindset shift. Towards the latter part of that time, that tenure, were you starting to think or know something else was on the horizon? Uh, no, not at all, really. I'm, I, again, I got to, I left Morgan Keegan to go to a place called SOS, Service Over Self. I was actually helping, the, the previous director had left and they were looking for a new director at SOS and I was actually helping them search for a new director. I had no intention of this. And, you know, I think probably most honestly, I it's one of the few times that I feel like in a special way, I think God communicated with me that he wanted me to go do that. Now, there are other kind of practical reasons that I thought it was a good deal to do, good re, you know, that, that made it a good idea, if you want to call it that. But ultimately, I just think, you know, I had sort of a moment in a cafe <laughs> where it was sort of obvious that he was asking me to go do that. So that's the main reason. The other one would be just that I had sort of, after 15 years, I felt like I was really thriving as a Christian businessman. Like I was, you know, what we were doing with our money, we were, we were meeting with guys, you know, there are guys on our floor coming to faith. Like it was, I remember like I was driving into work every day and I was like, man, no longer do I just get up and read the Bible and have sort of a worship time. And then I get in my car and I go do business. It was like, man, work was just a continuation of my morning worship. Like work was just worship. And like, I, I was like, this is, uh, well, let me, uh, gosh, let me, I, I gotta, I gotta mention this cause this had such a big impact. I, I heard about Alan Barnhart and Barnhart Crane and Rigging which are two brothers that wanted to go into the mission field instead went to work for their dad in a, crane rental business and they decided to do that but they said we're going to do this to make profits for to fund missions across the world and I when I heard that I remember thinking that is the coolest thing and why I remember thinking why didn't every Christian businessman do this like this makes just perfect sense and it took me about three days to figure out well David you're a Christian businessman and you got your own business of course it isn't near as big or profitable as Barnard Crane you can do the same thing (laughs) That also was part of this impetus of rethinking the way we spent money and, and gave money. So that's, that's, an, that's an important part of that story. But as I've sort of felt like this is, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm thriving as a Christian businessman. I did have the thought, I'd love to share this sort of vision with more people. And if I got into ministry where I would touch high school and college students and young adults and sort of share this perspective with them, maybe maybe more people would go and respond to that. And so I thought just from a leverage standpoint, it might be a good idea to do that. And so that's when you went over to SOS. Yeah. Gotcha. 
I mean, uh, just to touch on it, we, after five years, we went to East Asia and boy, the thought there was just simply, if I get to be 80 years old and I'm on my deathbed and I never took the gospel to the far reaches of the world, I'm going to be really sad about that. So, you know, it's all throughout scripture, God's call to take his word to the nations. And I just wanted to personally, tangibly do that. So we decided we'd do that for a year or two, and then at the end of a year or two, decide whether or not that was going to be our long-term hurrah or not. And after a couple of years, we decided not. And so we came back, and that's when we moved towards MTR. Can you talk a little bit about the formation of MTR? Because I'm not aware, and there might be other types of organizations like MTR, but I was previously only aware of Teach for America. Can you talk about what it was like building that organization from scratch? Yeah, I uh, went to work for a foundation called the Poplar Foundation. Tom Marino was a good friend of mine for years and was, is the di- executive director of that. And their focus was on education and he, they needed help. They were going to begin opening charter schools and needed somebody to just find property, help property get renovated, recruit a, a leader for it. Some of that sort of pre-legwork. I don't have an ed background. So they, inv- you know, they invited me to come and be a part of their foundation in that role. And there had been this idea that not only are schools important, but we need a teacher pipeline. You know, we need high capacity, high potential people to come to Memphis to build schools, particularly schools in lower performing schools, lower, uh, lower income neighborhoods. And so one of my projects, in addition to helping to uh, launch a new school was to think about a creative way of creating a teacher pipeline for Memphis. Uh, again, without a ed background, I couldn't really create it myself. I had to steal it. So early on, uh, we found a, a model called a, a teacher residency. There were three residencies. At that time, there were three other cities that had residencies. Unfortunately, they had just uh, a network, a national network had been developed among those three residencies to sort of capture best practices and then help facilitate more residencies throughout the country. So uh, we really like the model, which is a one-year, kind of like the medical industry. It's a, it's a, a, a training process, an extensive training process where a resident is paired with a mentor and sort of learns and practices without being the responsible person from the beginning. And so we like that idea. Uh, so I, I joined the network and, you know, kind of was led by them on the creation of it. And all of that happened during the calendar year of 2008. And we, then we launched essentially in January of 2009. What were the three other cities that had that network? Yep. Boston had Boston Teacher Residency, Denver had one, and Chicago had one. How many of them are there today? Uh, That network is called the National Center for Teacher Residencies. They still exist. I'd guess they're about 30, maybe 35. And so y'all have got 331 teachers in MTR right now. Is that correct? This coming year, we'll have 350 people working in high-need schools in Memphis. And y'all's first class, how many was that? We had 22 in our class. Uh, so we, we do a cohort model. We have a new class arrive in June of every year. They do a 12-month residency training that includes a master's degree and a full year as, an in, as a resident interning under a mentor. So our first year, we had 22. We're now in our 12th year. We've got 52, roughly, residents that have joined us this summer for this new class. Gotcha. And then the, the remaining 300, they're in years two, three, or four out with a school, correct? 
or year 11 or 12. Right. Okay. Every person that's come through our residency and trained through us, we continue to support and track. And so they're, yeah, about 350 that are still serving in Memphis schools. What were some of the core things that y'all were just locked in on trying to address and tackle from an educational standpoint on the inequality being the largest issue in America today? You know, we talk about the, the tagline you read earlier, you know, it's a, it's a single great, uh, educational inequality is the single greatest social justice and civil rights issue in America today. And so, you know, one of it is just that, that to live in a city where there is uh, such a disparity, we think is an injustice. And I remember early on, I remember thinking, heck, if we can, if we can build the Panama Canal and put a man on the moon, you know, why can't we bring quality and just education to our cities? You know, America has shown we can do these amazing things. Like, why aren't we doing it in some of these really important issues like education? So I think one is just recognizing the massive disparity. You know, we've got now today third graders in Shelby County schools are reading, you know, reading levels are like 20 percent, 20 low 20s. And then when you look at the lowest performing schools, you've got third grade reading levels at 10%. You know, one out of 10 kids can read at grade level. And where if you're in uh, wealthier neighborhoods and other schools, you might have reading levels at 100%. And so recognizing that huge disparity, number one. And then number two, I think it's really important to recognize like that sort of academic uh, disparity directly leads to economic disparity. Like the options and opportunities that you have based on your, your academic attainment and achievement are just significant. And so there is such an inequality in what children can do after education if they have such a disparity in their learning from K to 12. And so these things are just not okay. They're not fair. They're not just. And so uh, I wanted to be a part of something that taught to bless my own city, my own community in ways that were fair and right and just and provided kids that have historically been marginalized with opportunities that were the same as kids who just happened to be born a different race or in a different neighborhood. So from an educational standpoint, and then also from the, the family standpoint, what are the things that are missing or that as a nation that we have struggled with that have to be addressed or that have to be solved for those improvements to be made that you talked about? Some context to that answer would be there just is not one answer that if you could just say, boy, if we could do that, then everything would change. Like it is, it is, I think, education in, in marginalized communities is to see impact. It's, you know, you got to do a hundred things 1% better. It's not like there's one lever that if we just pull that, then everything changes. You know, those hundred things are both in school issues and out of school issues. Like it's not, it, um, you know, one of the things I, I think of all the time, you know, schools, oftentimes the schools that we work in get sort of labeled as bad schools, whether it's, they're not bad schools and so many people that are working in those schools are well-intentioned, well-meaning, high-capacity people. And uh, it's just oftentimes there are situations both in the school and out of school that makes learning more difficult in high poverty environments. So I think it's, it's, it's a lot of different things, but the thing that we focus on to get to your question directly, is that we think outside of the family, the, the parent, that the, the person who has the most potential for leverage in a child's life is the teacher in the classroom. You know, we would say proximity matters, and whoever is closest to the child is the one that can make the biggest difference. 
and outside of the family, the teacher is the one that has that sort of close, personal, regular contact. And that's why we focus on recruiting very, very high capacity, high potential people, training and supporting them really well, and then staying with them for years in the classroom so they can be the, the best teacher possible. The other pain point, the, and then I'll, I'll pause, but the other thing that's important to us that I think makes a lot of sense is you know, studies have shown that if a child, particularly already behind academically, if they have an effective teacher every once in a while, that teacher has very little impact on their future academic, on their academic trajectory. What children need in these neighborhoods are consistent contact with effective teachers year after year. And so at MTR, we partner with five neighborhoods and we uh, require our teachers to work just in those five neighborhoods for three years following their residency year with the hopes that we'd have a critical mass of high potential teachers that a child living in that neighborhood might have access to every year from kindergarten through 12th grade. How many total teachers are there kindergarten through 12 in the Memphis City Schools, roughly? It's roughly 7,000, somewhere between six and 7,000, I believe. Was it hard at first to get the school systems here in Memphis or you know, for other organizations in other parts of the country to be receptive to opening their doors to allow teachers from MTR to come in and to, and to really to really get involved and try to serve? Not terribly, not at the school level for a couple of reasons. The schools that we're wanting to serve typically have the highest teacher attrition rates of any of the schools in the city. So we don't have any sort of mandate requirement contract from the district that they have to hire our teachers. But in many of these schools, there are there are plenty of openings year after year as teachers, you know, there is a teacher attrition problem in our city, for example, 20% of all first year teachers leave and about half of all teacher, all new teachers leave within three years. So you can imagine with that sort of cycle of teachers coming in and out, if we're a consistent pipeline of new teachers, there's going to be a desire and a need for us. So no, principals typically have always welcomed us because we've, we've been able to provide motivated and well-trained, well-supported teachers for their schools. Now, after 12 years, our data has supported our work in that our teachers have, have been found to be very, very effective in the classroom. So that only makes principals' receptivity to our work even stronger. What are the types of teachers or what are their core beliefs or how are they wired for the ones that really want to come in and that actually stay and want to keep teaching versus just kind of churn out after a year or two? Well, boy, I got a lot of uh, thoughts on that. First of all, I would say the you know the work in the in schools that are historically marginalized, low income, uh, in low income neighborhoods, the work is very very difficult, and it's and it is in a sense more difficult if you're in a uh, in a school with a higher socioeconomic student population. The big difference is the amount of effort and work that it takes on behalf of the teacher to sort of generate the interest and desire and motivation to learn where a teacher in a higher income school, they've got all sorts of motivation pressures from home and family or interest in getting into college or what the, so the work that a teacher in the, in the schools that MTR goes into, not only do they have to figure out how to be a great teacher and prepare and deliver content, but it's also additional work of creating a classroom environment where students want to be there and they want to be engaged and they want to learn. And so the work is just, it just is more difficult. It's more demanding physically, mentally, emotionally, more demanding in these schools. And so for 
for people to have a shorter career in these schools, I don't think is to be is surprising or is to be frowned upon to some degree. Like it's just, it's intense work and it's very difficult to do very intense work for decades. And so it's understandable to me that, you know, a career shelf life of a teacher in these schools may not match a career shelf life of a teacher in a, in a higher income school. So that's one thing I, I'd want to say. But with the things that we focus on that I think help a lot, number one is this idea around community. So, so many times teachers will leave schools because they'll say, I feel isolated, alone, I'm in my classroom, I'm not supported, and you know, I'll gut it out, work as hard as I can, but eventually I can't do it anymore. And so we believe deeply that community is, is one of the sort of secret sauces that, that we focus on. Uh, we believe people thrive and flourish in community and they sort of die in isolation. We think community allows people support in their suffering. We know that community allows people to work harder with less effort when you're sharing the, the load. And so in our program, we focus deeply on community for all of those reasons to help people survive and thrive even in these difficult environments. And that's one of the reasons, not only is it for the benefit of the student, we think it's for the benefit of the teacher if they're in schools with multiple other like-minded and similarly trained teachers, we think that community among that helps the teacher's effectiveness and their retention. And of course, we think that's good for the students. So what I, what I would say is that, you know, the pain point you ask about is relying on community is deeply helpful for this sort of work. And then if I can come back for just a second to the idea of faith, faith is incredibly important in this work because if I'm a person of need, insecure and needy, and I go into places of scarcity, I can't last for very long. And so what the teacher needs to be is a place of sort of ever-ending resources and abundance that they can continue to be giving out to students. And that abundance, I think, comes from the freedom that we talked about earlier in the, in the discussion. If all of my needs are met through my relationship with God, uh, then I'm not interacting with my students from a place of need, like I need you to like me, I need you to think I'm a great teacher, and so forth, I need you to behave and obey me. Now I'm more from a place of abundance, and then I can, I can exist and live and thrive in those environments when, I've, when all of my personal needs have been met. So faith and community are two key aspects to thriving in these environments. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about if we can build the Panama Canal, why can't we do this? Back in 2009, 2008, if you were to know or think that MTR would be where it is today, even amidst all the things that are still being worked through or like COVID-19 challenges, et cetera. Would you have imagined that MTR would look today what it does 11, 12 years ago? I have two uh, opposing thoughts on that. So the first one would be no, in that in many ways, I think we've exceeded expectations of any of us that were around at the very beginning. I think in a lot of ways, we've We've been able to be successful from a lot of different measures. And so I'm very proud of the people that have come along and been a part of that. However, I would also say this, while we've been able to demonstrate really strong teacher effectiveness in classrooms, like I think at this point, it's, it's pretty obvious that MTR teachers can go into classrooms and perform very well and students can learn at high levels in their classrooms. At the same time though, we really don't see entire schools that are very different than they looked 11 years ago because of MTR's presence. Like 
if you're just comparing ACT scores today versus 12 years ago in high schools that we're in, there's not a measurable difference in the ACT scores of students graduating from those schools uh, or even third grade reading levels or seventh grade math levels. And so, you know, the code that has not been cracked is how can you translate individual teacher classroom success all the way out to sort of macro school level success. While I'm incredibly proud of the effort and the work and the success of our teachers, we really have not accomplished the mission. Our mission is Christian love expressed in equal education. We're providing the high, I think some of the highest quality faculty to the schools that have historically been marginalized. But you know, you wouldn't walk into some of these schools and say, oh, you know, it's a completely different place. And so we still have a whole lot of work to do. Is it fair to say that any school system is receiving value from MTR because they're getting team members added to their individual school that want to be there, that are trying to serve. And so it's going to improve the culture while working and striving to develop the student as much as possible. So I guess just from what you said and then the numbers on the total amount of teachers within the school system and how many schools, it sounds like just maybe even maybe just a lot bigger challenge than the Panama Canal was. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes I'll respond to a comment like that and say, you know, the injustices that were employed for the last 400 years have helped contribute to this massive educational injustice that we live in. And it just isn't going to get solved in 10 years of one teacher prep program. Hey, we don't even think that we're, we're not the answer. We're not the silver bullet. We just want to play a role in this work in our city. Like we just want to be at the table. Uh, number one, but number two, yeah, we've got 400 years of creating this mess. Like it just isn't going to get solved in our lifetime. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned by surrounding yourself with the right people to build the best organization that you can and then letting them leverage their expertise, but then also keeping everyone engaged and aligned on the direction, you know, that y'all set forth and that y'all are trying to accomplish? Well, yeah, a few things. Number one, I think it's absolutely critical that you have a very clear vision and mission and that you recruit to the distinctives of that vision and mission. So clarity and communication are super important and people knowing exactly who you are and what you're up to. So that's a, that's a huge part of attracting the right people. The second thing I would say is, as is is any leader, I think losing all, as I mentioned this idea earlier, but losing all self-interest is absolutely essential. Like if people, if people come and work and they figure out you're trying to use them for your own attention or glory or honor, and people don't dig that. And so truly coming to work from a place of being about the mission and vision and not using the mission and vision for your own glory and empowering others and giving credit and glory to others at every opportunity is, um, I think, is an absolute uh, must to attracting and retaining people. I think creating a, you know, a, a culture of community within a group of people, like where everybody is seen and valued and heard and they enjoy one another and you don't take your, while you work very hard and you have high expectations, you don't take yourself too seriously. You find moments to celebrate one another and celebrate victories and, you know, just creating a team and family atmosphere. I think people want to be a part of teams. They want to be a part of families. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so you got to create that. And when people come and are a part of that, they want to stay and be a part of that. 
one of the most important things I think my job is telling people thank you and good job. You know, <laughs> so if you, you know, I spend a lot of my time just finding ways and reasons to see people do the right thing and then tell them privately and publicly about it. And I think you do, you know, all these sort of little things, you build a culture where people thrive. And then once you started and you got 10 people doing that, then it's a, then it's hard for that culture to unwind and boy, then the reputation gets out and people just want to, people want to come and be a part of it. And then lastly, I would say very importantly, like you have to be successful. And so you got to do a good job. People want to work and be a part of winners. They don't want to work at and be a part of losers. And so attracting the right people and keeping them, part of that is you got to, you got to do what you say you're going to do and you got to do it well. So it's clear this is a very large and complicated problem that has gone on for a very long time, as you said. So how do you be realistic and celebrate and have high expectations amidst all the things that you've talked about while amidst still not hitting some of the goals and objectives that, that you want to be hitting right now? Well, I think one thing could be like, I think equal education, if you want to define it as kids growing up, kids graduating from high schools in the neighborhoods that we're working in have the same ACT as kids that are graduating from suburban schools some degree that's a great definition of equal education and that literally might be a hundred year 50 year goal or vision and so what you have to do is you got to back it up and say well what would be measures of success along the way that would say if we can do this over time that ultimate goal really can be achieved and so I think proving that teachers who are recruited trained and supported through our organization can go into schools and kids under them can learn at one and a half times grade level per year or can earn TVOS scores that are significantly higher than the average TVOS scores of other new teachers in the, in the district. You know, when we have those sorts of measures, I think you can say we're doing something right by doing this. If we do this with more people over more time, we will move towards our ultimate goal of equal education. So early indicators of, future success, I think are important to, to point out. What I, what I feel like I'm hearing you say is inverting the problem and understanding the check marks along the way. And so it's observing those, which sounds like a lot of strategic thinking as well that you and your team have done. So you're, you're encouraged, you're optimistic. It's just, it's going to be a long marathon. It feels like what you're saying. Yep. And then one other thing I think I've, I've got to mention, I know we've, we've been on here a while, but I think this is really important. Doing this work from a faith perspective also changes or adds a dimension of a definition of success. So if you don't have the faith perspective, you can easily feel like I'm totally responsible. I'm the teacher. If this child is going to learn, it's entirely up to me. I've got to kind of be the academic savior of this child. And that is a lot of pressure and a lot of angst comes with that. Uh, a biblical definition of success, I think, is simply being faithful to the character of God and so, you know, we can celebrate that every single team, you know, if we're going into classrooms, faithful to God's character to bring love and joy and peace and patience and our very best job and having a positive attitude, like that's worship and your day has been successful, whether or not your lesson went really well that day. And so we can celebrate successes along the way, even when kind of a worldly perspective of success may or may not be perfectly evident. And I think, a, I think that's right and smart, and B, I think that also provides a way for teachers feel successful and not carry the weight and burden of stress of 
having to be sort of the savior all the time. And you can actually teach better when you don't have that stress on you. Yeah. What you're saying is just freedom, freedom to the work and to the journey, but then understanding things you have to be responsible for, but then all the things that it's not up to you. Yep. 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 Amidst this whole journey of yours and amidst all this incredible work that MTR and all the folks that you work with in your organization, have there ever been any seasons or days where you feel like you're like, why am I doing what I'm, I'm doing? Or I, I don't know if I can take this much more or like even amidst all this incredible work and this, the faith that you've described, are there ever any dark periods just with the toil of it at times? Uh, yeah, all the time, <laughs> all the time. And it, you know, it goes back to one of the things I said earlier is a lot of it is like, I just realize my limitations and my weaknesses and like, I just can't be, the leader that MTR needs me to be. And I can't be the manager and the boss of people that they need in their manager or boss. And I, you know, as I recognize my, my shortcomings, it's, you know, it's humiliating at times and certainly humbling. Uh, and so those are, you know, some plenty of days I come home and just think, man, I, you know, I, I just don't have the goods for this. So that's one thing. Uh, and then I think to be honest, you have to recognize in, in our culture, the racial tension, uh, you know, we work in a very diverse uh, setting, you know, education in Memphis is very diverse. And so, you know, there's just a, a daily heaviness of all of our nation's racial sins play out in one way or another all the time in this work. And it's a very, very sad thing to see. And it's a very sad thing to experience. And it's really heavy and more so for my uh, black, you know, associates and friends and teachers. And it is for me, but nonetheless, it's heavy for everybody. And, and so those are difficult issues to deal with and to sort of work with. It can be demoralizing for sure. How have you learned how to be okay with where you're not impressive? Just, I mean, no, nobody's impressive across the board and it's easy to want to try to be impressive or it's easy to try to appear to have no weaknesses. It's easy to try to be in control of every situation. But then at the same time, it seems like people need courage and they need confidence, you know, when decisions need to be made, seeing that flesh out. How have you learned how to not take yourself so seriously and be okay with either lessons learned or maybe mistakes that were made, but then also keep doing what needs to be done and keep charging forward. Yeah, I'll try uh, several things. Number one, I have this goofy little phrase I tell myself all the time, but I'll I'll just say, you know, David, I'm on a I'm on a passionate and personal pursuit of personal humiliation. <laughs> so I read the Bible and I see who God is, and I can tell who I am in relation to Him and when I come to grips with the greatness of God and who I am in relation to him, then it helps me interact with other people so that when I get criticism, when people don't like me and what I'm doing or the decisions I make, you know, I can hear that from a lens of, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I'll say to myself silently as I'm receiving either whether I think it's fair or unfair criticism, I'll say to myself, Oh boy, you have no idea. <laughs> You know, if you if you knew all of me, you'd have so much more ammo than you have right now. You know, in, in essence, you can't take me any lower than I've taken myself. And so that's, I don't think, again, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's super helpful for me to 
to be able to kind of work through criticism, number one. The second thing I would say is, if I will believe the promises of God that I have all the love, all the affection, all the attention, I have the spouse, the home, the future, all that's promised me through Christ, then I have no need. Like all of my needs have been met. I'm loved and adored and fought for and bought and married to and mansion and home and eternity. And so that helps me move out into work from a standpoint of, oh good, I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to think my decision was great. I don't need you to think I'm the the best employee around here when I know I'm not, I, you know, I can just be who I am because I'm not, I don't have to impress you because I have what I need from God. So that's hugely helpful when I real, you know, when, when either I or others realize my shortcomings, I don't need to be the man and uh, I'm not the man. God's the man. So nobody else has to be that person. And uh, so that's, that's super helpful. I think those are the two things. And then I guess the third thing is like, I just want to, Empower and celebrate other people, man. And so I don't have to be empowered and celebrated. Last question I've just got, if if you're okay, uh, what are you and MTR and your team, what are y'all dreaming for? What are y'all striving for? What is like, what would you like to see happen more of or new things in the next 10 to 15 years? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. We're in sort of the process of thinking through that again what we're created to do is train teachers. And so we need to, you know, we need to double down and figure out how we can even improve and be better at training teachers. Like we just need to continue to grow in our skill and capacity in training and supporting teachers. And so we got to, you know, we, so we need to continue looking internally to figure out how we can improve the quality of what we do. So just doing what we do and doing it better is a big part of what our future looks like. I'd say the other thing that's important I think we've developed, we have, a, we have a team and a staff and a capacity that's really strong. And right now, that capacity is primarily offered only to people that come through our program through the residency, which is about 50 people a year. I think one of the things we got to figure out is how can we begin to offer our training to teachers that don't get to come through our residency program. So if you're a, if you're a veteran teacher, if you're one of our mentor teachers, are there ways and avenues that we create training opportunities that can provide some benefit to what you might think of as non-MTR teachers? So we need to, we need to broaden our reach out, I think, outside of just MTR, traditional MTR. I think that's a, uh, that's a, that's a big opportunity. Uh, And then I think specifically there's a massive need for early literacy help in our city. You know, again, 20 something percent, can read at a third grade level. And in our lowest performing schools, that's like 10%. So there's a major, major crisis in our city around teaching children how to read. And we have, I think we have a lot of skill and capacity in that work. And we got to really, we got to really leverage that to be a place where we can provide the city some really strong resources on teaching teachers how to teach kids how to read. When you're talking about non-MTR teachers, are you talking about non-MTR teachers just in this area, or are you talking about all over the country? Um, right now, I'm just talking about in Memphis. So, you know, if there's 7,000 teachers in Memphis, there's 350 that are in city schools now that are MTR trained. So that means there's 6,650 teachers that didn't come through MTR. I think we we need to think about what ways are there that we could deliver training and support and professional development to some subset of that 6,000 teachers who were not MTR residents originally. Gotcha. 
This has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation. It was fun to have. Yes, sir. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day.